All right, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, if uh, you don't have your Bibles, it's printed in your bulletin or in the blue pew Bibles. It is on page 230. Uh, with this chapter, and I recognize that there are some of you who are here today whose faces I don't know right away, which probably means that you haven't caught all of these uh, sermons in 1 Samuel. Sorry about that. You're jumping into uh, the middle of a story here. Uh, from the Old Testament, but do your best to follow along with it. In this chapter, we've reached something of a a critical point, a turning point, uh, if you will, a constitutional crisis in Israel. The question that's going to be asked here is, how will Israel be constituted as a nation? How will she be governed? And does the constitution that her king... Yahweh has established in his word, does that constitution allow for a human king to be part of the governing of Israel or not? Now, to this point, Israel has had a system of government that has been including elders from among the families and the tribes of Israel that make up Israel. And then along with them, there have been significant individuals whom God has used, whom God has raised up along the way to lead the people. Now, sometimes those are very significant people. For example, Moses and Joshua are the two most significant that we think of. But as a church, a year, two years now ago, we also went through the book of Judges. And we saw how after the period of Joshua, once they had gotten into the land, God would raise up judges on a non-hereditary basis. We can almost say on an ad hoc basis. As they were needed, as there was a crisis in the country, God would raise up people to serve in a role to guide and in particular to deliver the people. The book of Judges itself, the book of Ruth, the first seven chapters of Samuel have shown to us two things about that system. They have shown to us the efficacy of that system, how God has used it positively in the life of his people, how he has preserved his people through those times of crisis. Over now nearly 400 years they've had that system. But these books have also shown to us the inadequacy of that system. And that inadequacy is encapsulated in that phrase that we heard so many times that we're so familiar with from the book of Judges in those days. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, with the implication embedded in that very phrase that in the days when there will be, or now that there is a king in Israel, things should be better than this. It shouldn't be everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. It should be clearer and better for the people of God. So with that background then, hear this demand that comes in 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is the word of God. It is holy, infallible, and inerrant. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. 
They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the, Israel, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. Careful what you wish for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word and this text. It's an ancient word. It's an ancient text that describes an ancient political situation. And we pray that through it you would speak to us, your people today, that we might understand it aright, not misapply it, but apply it correctly to our lives. We thank you for your sovereignty and how you have worked in this world and continue to reign and rule in this world. Be with us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, roll up your sleeves, metaphorically, roll up your sleeves. This is not an easy passage. It is full of tensions and it is full of ambiguities, some of which can be resolved, and I'll do my best to resolve some of them today. 
but some of the tensions are inherent in the things that are being described here, and they're actually essential. Some of them aren't supposed to be resolved because there's a work that tension can do that resolution can't. There's some hard lines to walk in this passage here, and we need to be aware of those. And what it's going to call us to when we can't resolve, when we can't get around the tension, it's going to call us to humility and to be careful, to be watchful about ourselves. Frankly, this is a call to be watchful about ourselves, about leadership in our homes, in our families, in a nation. There are lots of things for us to consider here today. There is rich theology in this passage, and it is eminently practical for us as well. Lauren and I have been talking together all week long kind of about ways this passage applies to us, things that are being challenged in our own life as a result of this. It may not look like it on the surface, but hopefully we'll be able to draw it out and see it clearly as we work our way through it. But it will take some work, and it doesn't come easily, and it doesn't outline easily. Uh, the, The passage itself outlines fine. There's an introduction, there's a request, there's a response to the request by Samuel and then by God. Uh, Then there's the warning that is given, and then there's the response of the people and uh, the response of Samuel and God to uh, that final response of the people. That's how it lays out. But frankly, it's much messier than that, and that's not very helpful um, in terms of a preaching outline. We're going to have to just dive into this thing. I have no outline for you today. So we're just going to dive in, and we're going to do our best to make sense of what is before us here as we follow along in this text. So Just work your way through it with me. The immediate context here tells us that Samuel has grown older. So time has gone by since chapter 7 that we saw last time, perhaps those verses at the end of chapter 7 describing Samuel's ministry, his itinerant ministry where he would go to city to city within a certain area, but his home base was Ramah. Time has gone by, Samuel has grown old, and he has appointed his sons as judges. Now, there are two problems here. I'm not going to elaborate on these problems, but as soon as we hear that Samuel has appointed his son as judges, there are two problems that immediately come up. One is what I said in the introduction, namely, judges or judgeship was not a hereditary position. Okay, so when we hear he appointed his sons as judges, something goes, wait a minute, that's Not quite right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. In the book of Judges, there was one hereditary judgeship. Uh, It was Gideon and his son Abimelech, and it was an unmitigated disaster. So when you hear Samuel appoints his sons as judges, you go, huh, that doesn't seem like what we've seen in the past about the way God raises up judges according to his providence at a particular time for a particular situation. Secondly, The second problem that's here is the sons aren't Samuel. They do not walk in the ways of their father. They are more like Eli's sons. They pervert justice. And we wept over that, or we we, we expressed our sadness over that, our wonder over, you know, how does this take place when the sons don't follow in the ways of their fathers uh, earlier in the series, and we're not going to come back to it again. 
But it at least provides us, and those three verses are designed to provide us with part of the context for understanding why the elders then come to Samuel with their request. Questionably appointed leadership and leadership that is perverting justice. It's not a good situation. And so the elders come to Samuel. Now, as these elders come to Samuel, try for a moment to imagine what is taking place behind that. What has taken place amongst those elders to take them to this point of in unity coming to Samuel with this request? You can imagine there were any number of meetings at which they got together and they argued. What do we do about this situation? And one person would bring up this point and another person would say that and they'd go back and forth over the best way to resolve this situation before coming to Samuel with this petition, now appoint for us a king to judge us. Or when Samuel shortens it before God, give us a king to judge us. Uh, Lauren and I recently watched a movie about the American Revolution And sometimes when you look back on historical events, you can just kind of see the event and progression looks logical. It looks like it just happens. It's the next thing that happens and you would expect for it to happen. So it was the time when America should have its independence and everybody got together and they decided, okay, we're going to have our independence. We're not going to have a king, kind of the opposite of our story here today. Uh, We're not going to have a king and we'll do it this way. But what the movie captured well, I thought, was all that went into all of the angst and all of the turmoil that went into that discussion, that decision. And I imagine the same thing going on in the background here as well as they prepare and now make their way to Samuel with this request. Now just to put this in context one more time, there was a similar request that was made in the book of Judges. It was made to Gideon. Gideon was asked to rule over the people of Israel, and he said, I'm not going to do that, and and my sons aren't going to do that either. Now, the request here is a little bit different. Appoint for us a king uh, instead of the request for Samuel to be that king. But in their coming, another reason or justification is provided in their request, namely... We want you to appoint a king to judge us like all of the other nations, like all of the people that we see around us. They have kings. We don't have a king. We would like to have a king as well. One can, I think, fairly easily imagine the reasons, the argumentation that might have gone on to take them to this point. International relationships will be easier if we have a similar government to the nations that are around us. Our national identity and unity, our cohesiveness as tribes, as a nation itself, will be increased if we have a centralized leader. This will give us a way to get rid of Joel and Abijah. We'll be able to appoint someone, a king, who will judge us, so we get rid of these bad guys, we'll appoint someone better. And there's one more reason that is given 
and I have to articulate it here because it makes sense to articulate it here, but it doesn't come out clearly until verse 20 of chapter 8. In verse 20 of chapter 8, we read this, that, that the king may judge us, and we've seen that, and go out before us and fight our battles. They're looking for someone to fight on their behalf. Now, we'll come back to that in just a moment. But you, those are the justifications for having a king. But for all of these positive reasons, I think the negatives are also fairly clear when we reflect on this. God has established them to be a holy people, to be his people in a unique way where he reigned as their king and they were, as he's described, a kingdom of priests underneath of God's rule. They are unique. They're not supposed to blend in with the nations who are around them. They are warned specifically, don't look at the ways and the customs and the worship and everything else of the nations around you. Listen to me, listen to the law that I have given to you and be a unique people. Don't follow after the ways of the world that you're living in. The absence of a human king in and of itself reminds them of the presence of their divine king. The very fact that they don't have one means that God himself is king in that position. And that divine warrior king, he is the one who fights their battles, and he raises up judges as he needs to, just as we've seen him do for hundreds of years now, and just as we saw him do in the chapter right before this. Right before this section, we read about how God, as their divine warrior king, defended them when the Philistines once again were at the gate. How that God thunders and as a result of that thunder, the Philistines are thrown into confusion and the people of Israel can pursue them even farther. We see the effectiveness of what God has provided in his own kingship and his own defense of his people. So that's the request that is presented to them. That's the reasons that are given. And then we get in this text the reactions, the responses to the requests. And the first one we get is from Samuel. And Samuel is not happy with this request, and it's easy for us to understand why he's not happy. For Samuel, this isn't just some theological discussion about what would be the best way to form a government in Israel, what's the most theologically appropriate way and system to rule over God's people now living in this part of the land. For Samuel, this is deeply personal. And he feels it personally as they come to him with this request, as any of us would, were we in the same position. When he hears this, he takes it as a rejection of himself. He sees, they've rejected me from being judged. Now, Let's be clear, Samuel has gotten older, he's appointed his sons, so he doesn't do all of the things that he used to do. But from this chapter, we see that he still has a lot of significance, he's the one to whom the elders come, and from the subsequent chapters we'll see as well that he still has a lot of authority within Israel itself. 
And so he's not completely off the scene, and he realizes that essentially what they're saying is, Samuel, hand the keys over. Hand the keys over. Have you had to approach your parents and ask for the keys to the car? This is a double entendre here. Um, Have you had to do that? If you've had to do it, even though all of us recognize that at some point in our lives it will be good if someone takes the keys away from us, when that moment comes, you do not like it and you do not like the people who came and took the keys away from you. And right now, the elders of Israel come to Samuel and essentially say, give us the keys of the kingdom and appoint a king and give him the keys of the kingdom. So he sees it as a rejection of himself, but it's more than that. It's also a rejection of his sons and his appointment of his sons. Now, if you're a parent, you're used to uh, probably uh, evaluating your kids and sometimes having harsh things to say about your kids or to your kids. But when somebody else says that to you, about your kids, ooh, that does not feel the same. It's one thing for you to say, you know what, they're a little deficient in this, they need to grow in this, but if somebody else says it to you, those are fighting words. And that's what's happened here. Essentially, they say to Samuel, listen, you appointed your sons, and look at them. Look at what they do. And so Samuel takes this deeply, personally, And as well, theologically, there are problems for it from Samuel's perspective as well. And so he turns to the Lord in prayer with this situation, and then we see the Lord's reaction to this request. And this is where the tension really deepens and thickens in the passage, because you might think that God hearing a request like this, given the reasons stated, given his own kingship over the people, would say what? No way. I'm wiping them out. But he doesn't. In fact, in the text, three times he says, obey their voice. So verse 7, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. Verse 9, obey their voice. And then in the conclusion, verse 22, obey their voice and make them a king. And just to kind of, just because you know this word in Hebrew, and I'm just going to shorten it and simplify the form, what God says is, Shema, the people of Israel. Shema, the people of Israel, that's dangerous. The Shema is, you shall listen to, you shall obey, you shall hear the Lord. And in this case, the Lord is saying, listen to the people, and you go, this can't be good. a, A command to listen to the people can't be good. And yet, there it is, and it it makes us wonder, why listen to them? Is the king and the bringing in of a monarchy, is this a blessing, or is it a curse? Is God saying, go ahead and do it, because it's a curse? There's a tension here. We'll work our way through it in a little bit. God gives the reason behind obey their voice, which seems an odd reason given the fact that he's saying obey their voice. Why? Because they have rejected me. Samuel, they haven't just rejected you, they have rejected me, and that is a powerful and a clear word spoken by the Lord. They've rejected me. Verse 8 amplifies what that rejection is like. 
according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. This is the pattern. This isn't the first time that they have rejected me. It's what they do. They've been doing it since the day I took them out of Egypt. They reject me, and now I see them rejecting me again. And let me broaden the scope for a moment. This isn't the last time God will be rejected as king. He will send his son as king, and the, come, the king will come bringing a kingdom. The son will come bringing a kingdom, and that son will be, exact same word is, that is here, that son will be the stone that the builders reject. This is not the first time they have rejected the kingship of God. It is not the last time when they will reject the kingship of God. Come back tonight. Blake's going to preach more on that tonight. But back to verse 8 here for a moment. What it says, and what God says about their rejecting him, is that it involves forsaking me and serving other gods. And this is a critical point for us to understand. Essentially what God is saying here is this request of theirs for a king is a way of rejecting him and serving other gods. And what do you call serving other gods? Well, that has a name. That's called idolatry. The requesting of a king is idolatry. It's someone else to serve in the place of God. And yet, when we look at the text, there are no apparent idols around. There were idols in chapter 7. There were the Baals and the Ashtaroths in chapter 7. There's Dagon, the Philistine idol before that. But to help us to see that this, see how this works, if you've got your Bibles open, turn to chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, and I want to read verse 12 for you. If you don't have it, you can just listen to me reading this verse. This is Samuel's farewell address, and he's talking about them requesting a king and the setting for it. And he says this, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was a king. Now, now that's significant right there. We didn't know in chapter 8 about Nahash. We, we know that a king could go out, theoretically, and fight our battles for us. It's kind of the very last thing they say, oh, by the way, a king might be nice for warfare. When in reality, it's the reason. It's the very reason they want a king is because Nahash is loaded up and ready for battle, and they want protection from Nahash and his swords. And that takes us immediately back. That is the moment at which you go, wait, that sounds really familiar. In fact, it sounds exactly like chapter 4, except in chapter 4, it wasn't the Amorites, it was the Philistines. And it wasn't a king they requested in chapter 4. What was it? It was the ark. The solution in chapter 4, go get the ark. We've we got we to defeat these guys with the ark. The solution in chapter 8, go get a king. The two things are paralleled with one another. 
And thus the ark and the requested king function in the exact same way. They function as idols. Things or people in which we put our trust instead of God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses and some in arks and some in kings and some in presidents and some in courts and some in political systems. Some trust in medicine, some trust in investment plans, some trust in working out to preserve their health, some trust in intelligence, some trust in strength, some trust in their own ingenuity, some trust in an inheritance, some trust in a really great education. An idol is a thing or a person in which we put our trust instead of God. Be careful what you wish for, Israel. Be careful what you want. God says you want a king? You want a king like the nations around you. That's what, that's what you're asking. Okay, I'll give you one. I'll give you a king exactly like the nations who are around you. But Samuel warned them. And so Samuel provides the rights, the customs, the ways of the king who will rule over them, which is essentially the opposite of the requirements that were read and described for us in Deuteronomy chapter 17. The warning that he gives, and the way I hope you heard it as I read it, what the king will do on your behalf is he will take, 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 and he will keep on taking. That's the king that you've requested. That's the kind of king you are going to get. And the people, of course, ignore this prophetic warning and demand their doom and their enslavement all the while thinking and professing that they are demanding their liberation. They think they're getting protection, and instead they're getting enslavement. That's this chapter. Now let's zoom out and return again to a question, because the question remains, is a king, is a monarchy, is kingship a blessing or a curse? Did God want Israel to have a human king or not? Whose will is being done here? Is this the will of God that's being done in this passage, or or is it the will of sinful man that's being done in this passage? Well, to answer the question, did God want Israel to have a king, we've got to go back a little bit to Abraham. You don't have to turn here. Genesis chapter 17, part of the covenant promises made to Abraham, kings will come forth from you. To Judah, Genesis chapter 49, the blessing is given. The scepter will not depart from Judah until he comes, until the one comes whose it is to rule. Deuteronomy chapter 17, the passage that we have read already. Provisions and law governing kingship, how it was to take place. Hear this clearly. Human kingship in Israel is a gift. It is a blessing 
according to the sovereign will of Israel's eternal king. Kingship, in and of itself, is not a usurpation of God's reign. It is an expression of it. Now, let me make that clear by referencing what we have seen so carefully worked through already in the book of Samuel. Only God can forgive sin, but the human priesthood is a gift. Only God declares his word and his will, but human prophets are the instrument through whom, through which God communicates his word and his way. Only God reigns and delivers and protects and judges, but human kings are instruments of that rule. That's what's being set up here. Each of these offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king, each of them embodies, puts literally flesh on that which is essential for humanity, that we might live, that we might be forgiven, that we might be blessed in this world. We must know the word and the will of God. And so he enfleshes prophets. We must be forgiven of our sins. And so he enfleshes priests. And we must know the reign and the rule of God. And so now a king is embodied as well. These offices and those who occupy them are given by God to lead us to the Son who will bring the kingdom. They are given and established by God to help us ultimately as the people of God understand the type of anointed one we actually need. To help us to understand, to conceive of, to see what kind of prophet, priest, and king we actually need, that is our King Jesus. That is our great high prophet, Jesus. That is our one and true and only high priest, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. The offices do that when they are occupied by men who fill them well and responsibly. Because we look at them and we say they're examples for us of faith. They're examples for us of how to follow after God, how to seek the word of God, how to live under God's rule. We're encouraged by them when they are filled by men who do them well. And the offices also do that when they are occupied by scoundrels. Because what that reveals is the inadequacy of all men. It reveals the inadequacy of kings and of subjects and makes us yearn for the one who would be a faithful subject to his own father, the king, and who would receive a kingdom as a result, the God-man receiving the kingdom and reigning with righteousness and justice. In other words, this is an ugly situation. Inadequacy is built into this human system 
to reveal the reality of God who turns the curse into a blessing. They're getting what they ask for. And as a result, they're going to be cursed as a result of it. And God, in just a few chapters, is going to turn it into a blessing. And he's going to bless them through kingship because it's going to drive them to the anointed one. The problem in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is not kingship. Bob Vinoy writes, at issue was the kind of kingship Israel desired and their reasons for wanting a kingship. That's the issue here, not king, but the kind of king, like the other nations. The reasons. We need somebody to fight for us. Ralph Davis writes it this way, it is not monarchy, but trust in monarchy that is the villain. Which brings this back home to us with the question, in whom or in what do we trust? Now, be careful of how hastily you answer that question. Idolatry is tricky business. It is deep in our hearts. We are absolute masters of taking the good gifts of God in whatever form they come to us and making them our objects of desire and our objects of trust. You can even do it with the ark. You can make the ark the most holy thing God has made and make an idol out of it. You can do it with your spiritual life. You can do it with memory of scripture or memory of catechisms. You can do it with how faithful and regular and great your devotions are. You can make an idol out of anything. The most holy things, the best things, you can make an idol out of them. Idolatry requires constant vigilance. It's not a one-time type thing where you go, okay, well, I put all the, the old things that I did away and I don't do those things anymore because idolatry is com- constantly morphing. It constantly changes to fit where we are in life. Idolatry and idols are shapeshifters. The more they look like something good, the more they look like a king, the more likely we are to fall for them or to fall before them. The message of this text is the message we've already seen a couple of times now in Samuel. Reject idolatry. Take anything in your life. I practiced this. Lauren and I were, this was part of what we were doing. I practiced taking any noun, any pattern of behavior, anything, and putting it in that slot right there. And, and we realized you can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of cooking eating and drinking. You can make an idol out of them. You can, you can make an idol. Sorry, I'm not going to go through a list. Fill in the blank. Any th- single thing, you can make an idol out of it. 
And so we've got to ask ourselves some questions when we're talking about anything, even a king. We have to ask ourselves questions like, am I glorifying God with this activity that I'm involved in? Can I genuinely be giving thanks to God for this thing or this activity that I'm doing right now? Is this beginning to own me? Is it beginning to take too much of my time? Am I too emotionally invested in this thing that I'm doing right now? If the answer to those questions indicates idolatry, then you've got to step back from that. You've got you to check it a little bit. Now, that doesn't mean we get rid of all of these things. These are good things. We have to learn how to appreciate them rightly. That's what Israel would have to do with a king as well. The answer wasn't no ark, no king. Well, they were scared of the ark, uh, so there, there's a little bit of that. But the answer is approach the things that God has given to us correctly, rightly. Check them. Reject idolatry and receive the king. Receive the king Jesus. Ask him to search your heart. Hannah prepared us for this day. In her song, and her prayer, she said, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And David himself, the next king, said this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Let's pray. Lord, save the king, your king, your anointed one, the God-man, who is prophet, priest, and king, and who will come again in righteousness to reign, to judge, to put every enemy under his feet one last time. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, guard our hearts as your people. Point out to each one of us where we are making idols out of the good things in our lives that you have entrusted to us. Help us to see them. And help us to seek you and your kingdom first and not those other things, even though they be to us some of your gifts. Guard us and protect our hearts from idols. Jesus, we pray this, that you might reign in our hearts and lives. Amen.